0: And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and neither shall they be snatched out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Paul said, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Before we open up God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful we have your word. What a privilege it is for us as believers in this church age to actually have our own scripture in front of us that we can read, that we can make notes on and underline, that we can memorize. And this is such a rare privilege when we look at the scope of history in the last 2,000 years. So, Father, we are thankful for such a privilege. And, Father, we pray that we might not treat that lightly, and that we have so much available to us, and we know Scripture says, to whom much is given, much is, much is required. And, Father, we pray that we might not treat this lightly, but that we might recognize what a treasure we have in your Word. So, Father, today as we study your Word, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth, that we may come to understand in greater ways our the distinctive role that we play as those who are in the new man, those who are in this new body, the bride of Christ, and are being built together into a temple for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, and um, as I worked my way through the notes today, I realized that Um, something has happened and I'm missing my first few pages, but that's okay. I think I know what I'm going to say. We're looking at separation at the beginning, this doctrine of separation. I came to this at the end of the last lesson, the last class, last Sunday morning, and realized there were a few more things I needed to say about this. This is one of those Uh, doctrines of Scripture, something the Bible teaches that is important for us to be reminded of, but also to be aware of the fact that there are those who have distorted this doctrine and make it into something that is ineffective and legalistic. So we need to think through this just a little bit. So last time we were told not to partner with darkness. The word for partner, medicae, is a synonym for the word koinonia for fellowship, and so Paul goes back and forth between the two two words, and this is all part of the challenge at the beginning of this section in Ephesians 5, 8, that we are to walk in the light. So we have looked at these four issues. Number one, what the Bible teaches about light, that light is eternal because God is light and he dwells in unapproachable light. I don't think we can quite grasp all of the implications of that or even many of them. That is a profound statement because it it takes us back into eternity past where we have no comprehension of just what that means but we come to understand that that light is used as a a metaphor that relates to God's being, his righteousness and his justice, his distinctiveness, and that apart from him there is no light, and light is often used as a metaphor for illumination of knowledge, the illumination of truth. And so, when we think about walking in the light, we're reminded of uh the psalm that says that um, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path." So we then move to the second point in the exposition of the text that we are children of light, and we are to walk as children of light, which indicates in the first uh first clause that we have a new identity, we are light, that is now defining us. And it is not something that we made for ourselves or that we did anything for, it is that which God gave us in terms of this new position in Christ. So we learned about that and that there's nothing we can do to change our identity as light. Third, we saw that we are to walk in light, and both in this chapter as well as in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we recognize that the believer can walk in darkness. This is a doctrine that is rejected by those who hold to many Reformed doctrines on soteriology with their view that there is no such thing as a carnal Christian And so they interpret all of 1 John as a contrast between those who are truly saved and those who are truly lost. And uh, we recognize that, no, what this is saying is that we are children of light, and yes, it is a real possibility that we can fall into sin and stay there, fall into rebellion against God and stay there, and walk as if we were children of darkness. And so we are reminded that there are these influences around us, as well as our own internal enemy, our sin nature, that are constantly uh, struggling to control us and to control our thinking and our and our lives, um, that it's just come straight from darkness. And we are to make a conscientious decision day by day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, that we are to live as a child of light. And then fourth, we've looked at how that is to take place. How do we walk in light? We walk in the light of God's Word. And the answer to that was we walk on the basis of or by means of God, the Holy Spirit, working with the Word of God, and it is the two together. So as we look at this section from 5.8 to 5.14, I focused on these words related to light and contrasting with the words related to darkness. It's an either-or. And you have not been exposed to some of this kind of teaching, but it is predominant among pastors and theologians in this church age, and that is that no you you always do things for mixed motives so you have one foot in the light and one foot in darkness and you really don't need to confess your sin you will hear that over and over again and that's due to this misinterpretation of 1 John and so what we see all through scripture is that there's this contrast we're either one or the other Uh, We're not a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. We are a child of light, not of darkness. We either walk in the light or walk in the darkness. There's no such thing as walking in the twilight, because in the twilight you can still see you're in the light. So we have to understand this, and um, I say that because while we have a few people here who are taking some courses through Chafer Seminary, and Chafer Seminary, that's part of our doctrinal statement, And this is part of the theology that um, goes back through Lewis Berry Chafer, who is the one for whom the seminary is named. And he goes back to many, many generations, goes back to the uh, writing of the New Testament, but has often been misunderstood because throughout church history, people just have had this legalistic problem with Christians who sin and they've never quite understood the grace of God in relation to sin after salvation. So we are to walk in the light, and then when we do that, we come into these words that are synonyms. We are to expose them. What does that mean? Um, These things are exposed, are made manifest. That is, they are revealed by the light, and whatever reveals it is light, Because only the truth of God's word can expose darkness. And then we have the uh, concluding exhortation in verse 14 Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is basically a challenge to those who are walking in darkness, the ones who are carnal, the ones who are not walking in the light, that they need to wake up. They're in a catatonic spiritual state, and they need to wake up and return to walking in the light. So Ephesians 5.10, which we've studied, says finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Finding out seems like a weak way to translate the verb here, which is dokimazo. Again, this is important for another word that is used coming up, as used as a synonym. And it, it, it's really a term that comes out of the mining industry, where you mine for certain metals, valuable metals like a gold and silver, and then this comes out and it has impurities in the in the ore, and has to be uh, taken through a smelting process that burns off the impurities, and so it has this idea of evaluating or testing or examining. Uh, something to discover what is of value as opposed to uh, just sort of uh, finding something out. It is to test, to evaluate, to critically think your way through the issues. And so that's the idea here. We need to critically think about what the text of the scripture says and look use that as the guideline for evaluating what is going on in our minds, between our ears, and um, other aspects of our life. Then we come to the next uh, couple of verses, which read, "...and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them." So we're not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. That's not necessarily talking about people, but it may include people. And then, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So when it talks about this separation, that what fellowship has light with darkness, what does the Bible mean by this? So first of all, separation in Scripture is emphasized because of the negative influences around us and how that can distract us and pull us away from our focus upon the Lord. So we are to separate from various influences which can distract us in our spiritual life. Now that separation can come in two forms. One form is just a physical separation that we know that there are certain places, certain things, certain people that we that we can be influenced by, and it may mean that we need to completely uh, physically separate from those influences. And then in other ways, we can't avoid some of those influences. It may be have something to do with work. It could be something to do with family. It could do, have something to do with uh, a social environment that we are thrown into and cannot avoid. And so we have to understand what it means to mentally or spiritually separate from those influences, what that takes, what's involved in that. One passage that I remember because I heard it a lot when I was in junior high and high school, and that is a passage in 1 Corinthians 15.33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts. And that word that's described, corrupts, can also be, de- be um Defined as destroyed or translated as destroyed, evil company corrupts or destroys good habits. And that word can also be translated as good character or good morals. And this is a proverbial statement or a universal principle that we must understand. And the word that is used for deceived, is often used for deceived, is the verb planao. The noun is where we get our word for planet because the Greeks saw that some of the stars wandered through the heavens unlike other stars, and so they were called wandering stars or planets. And so deception has to do with wandering away from the truth. So do not be deceived. Do not be uh, caught up in something that causes you to wander away from the truth. The next verse says awake to righteousness. Now this word, uh, there's a word for awake. There's several words for this idea of being awake. This is not the same word that we have um, in in Ephesians 5, um, 12 that we're coming up on that is talking about that is talking about uh, awakening there, but they are synonyms. They have the same basic, same basic uh, connotation. Uh, where it talks about awake, you who sleep. So the key thing to think about here is that it has this idea of thinking objectively. Some translations translate it be sober, but that has a different connotation in our society. Being sober indicates that you haven't been uh, influenced by drugs or alcohol. But the idea is that you're a clear thinker. You're thinking objectively according to reality as God defined it. God is the creator. He is the definer of truth, and his word is truth and he elevates his word above his name so that there is great uh, emphasis in the Scripture on knowing the Bible. That does not make us uh, bibliolaters. There are those who claim that that's what it does, but it doesn't. We do not worship the Bible, but we recognize the Bible is that which gives us the information to worship the God of the Bible who revealed that uh, to us. And so we are to live our lives. Uh, another element of this word, the way it's used, is with a focus on the future return of Christ. So it is not just uh, being uh, awakened to the truth of Scripture, but with a view of the fact that we need to be, uh, uh, we need to implement Scripture in our lives in preparation for the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know how soon that will be. It's imminent. It could happen at any time. There are no signs in related to the the Lord. And so you have these words that indicate that the Lord is coming quickly, but quickly in God's timetable is not quickly in our timetable. That doesn't mean day after tomorrow. It could, but we don't know. So we are to be alert and think about or with reference to righteousness and do not sin. Now, I've heard Christians say, well, if you say not to sin, then, then that's pretty superficial because God knows we're sinners and God knows that uh, we're going to sin tomorrow, the next day, we're going to continue to sin. And so this is a command that is not realistic. No, we are to think, I should not sin. The only way not to is to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Just because we know that we will, and just because we know we have a sin nature, and that we will continue to sin, doesn't mean that the command is unrealistic. It is a, a challenge to us that we are to be walking in the light, just because we are going to sin and walk in darkness doesn't invalidate the command to walk in the light. So we are to awake to righteousness. That means we are to think about it. That is a focal point. We are to think about what it means that we are to live in conformity to the righteousness of God. It has to do with our experience of uh, what we call experiential righteousness, as we walk with the Lord and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God, and that could be a that could be a genitive of source knowledge from God, or it could be an objective knowledge about God. Um, I think that it's probably more about knowledge about God because they do not they are not well taught. And then he says, remember he's talking to the carnal Corinthians, he said, this is to your shame. Now in Ephesians 5.11, we read, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So this is telling us that there needs to be this distinction uh, between believers and unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14, we looked at last time, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, there are those that are. They have married an unbeliever, and by God's grace, they are a witness, and that unbeliever gets saved. We have had a number of spouses saved here in this congregation and in other places, but that doesn't mean that that's God's standard or God's ideal. We're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And that has reference to other areas. And I'm not sure where to draw the line. There are certain contractual relationships we enter into in life. There are certain business partnerships that are entered into in life. And this is not saying that you shouldn't do any of those, but you have to be cautious and careful about those that you do enter into. Um, I think the rule of thumb is, is this partnership, this other, whatever the entity is, whether it's a person or corporation, am I going to be negatively influenced to uh, affirm policies or procedures that I know to be contrary to the word of God? And so we have to think about those things. Uh, And Paul goes on to say, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship or partnership has light with darkness? These are all absolutes, one or the other. Uh, Then we go to verse 15, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another nickname for Satan. So what accord that has to do with an area of shared interest? What accord has Christ with, with Lyle, or what part or what inheritance has a believer with an unbeliever? Verse 16, and what agreement has, which has to do with a, um, like some sort of union? Uh, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Again, that goes back to our identity as believers. So we see this contrast we went through last time that on the one side we're identified with righteousness, light, Christ, believer, and temple of God. That relates to our identity in Christ and that those who are in the left column are not to be closely associated with those in the right column. This is separation. And so we have to ask this question about, well, how far do we go in separation? What does that actually look like? My second point is that too often in history, Christians have abused this teaching. You go into uh, the church history, and you see, starting in the late uh, 3rd century and into the 4th century, the rise of monasticism, and this ideal was that you needed to physically separate from the world and just join with other believers, and you would somehow uh, be on a higher spiritual plane. And that was not true. That's, we'll see in a couple of passages that is not what the Scripture is talking about. What it is talking about is that in our new identity, we are no longer in the world or we are no longer, excuse me, I mistyped that, and we are no longer of the world. We have been positionally removed from the ownership of the world or the cosmic system. Christ has positionally removed us from the world, but we have to learn experientially to quit thinking like the world. John fifteen nineteen, Jesus said, If you were of the world... The world would love its own, so we're not of the world anymore. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, just because we are identified with Christ. In Romans 12.2, I have translated, paraphrased, expanded the translation here, where we're told, do not be pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking, that you may evaluate in order to demonstrate that the will of God is good and acceptable and sufficient. So we can only do that if we have our thinking transformed, and that means that we're going to think differently from many of the people around us. And I can't tell you that you shouldn't listen to this kind of music or you shouldn't watch these kinds of shows, but as you mature, what happens is you see your tastes will change because you recognize, especially in this day, that many of the things that we see in entertainment have messages that are built on a non-biblical or anti-biblical worldview and that that begin, will begin to make you feel uncomfortable, and so you will make different decisions as you grow and advance. But this should not be set forth as some sort of legalistic thing that you shouldn't watch this kind of thing or that kind of thing. Um, I remember when I was in high school learning about people who went to certain Bible colleges, and one uh, one man who was a good friend of mine Um, that he just thought it was sinful for Christians to go to movies. And um, finally his wife convinced him to go see Sound of Music, and he decided, well, maybe not all, all movies were from the pit of hell. But you can't make these hard and fast kind of legalistic decisions. You have to understand what the principles are, because we are in the world, but we are not of the world. This is what Jesus emphasized, that we are no longer of the world. Uh, we are not necessarily to physically remove ourselves from all things. In many cases, that's not possible. Uh, but we are to have a ministry to the world. And we should pray as Jesus prayed in John 17:15 through 18. This is very important to think through specifics of this prayer. He said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. See, he's he's praying to the Father that he should not take us out of the world, but he should keep us from the evil one. So God is protecting us from that direct uh, influence of Satan. And Jesus continues to pray this prayer as our high priest. Verse 16, he says of the disciples, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So we are in the world, but we are not of the world. In verse 21, Jesus said that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Isn't that an interesting verse? You know, That's only a couple of verses later. But it's built upon this new identity we have that we are not of the world, we, but we are still in the world. But it gives a purpose to this prayer that is the purpose of unity. Now, have we read or taught or learned about an emphasis in unity anywhere lately? What about our studies at the end of Philippians chapter 1 and the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, the emphasis on unity, which actually goes through all of chapter 2? Well, you think about it in terms of the beginning of this section in Ephesians, this emphasis on unity, where Paul writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 2 talks about it, that this walk is based on humility. Without humility, there can't be experiential unity. Verse 3, he says, striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're created with a unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ, and we have to work to maintain that. We're not working to create it. Verse 4, he says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father and all. So a unity is integral to our position in Christ. We are one in Christ. That goes back to that. See how Scripture interrelates with one another, and we keep running into these same themes over and over again. So we're not to assimilate to the world in our thinking. We're not to compromise with the world in our thinking. And this is the life that we are to have, and this is the description that we're working through in this whole section of chapters 4 and chapter 5 is these contrasts between those who are walking worthy, not walking like the Gentiles around us, walking in love, walking in the light. All of these are the same and it will entail to some degree either physical separation or mental separation. A third point is that one key aspect that demonstrates that distinction, uh, Paul keeps mentioning throughout this section, and that is the content of our conversation. Have you noticed how many times as we've gone through four and now five where he talks about things that we talk about, things that we uh, speak about in ephesians four fifteen he says, But speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, so we are to be speaking the truth now that's really important. Where do we get the truth? We get the truth from the Word of God, so what he 's talking about here is this framework that we often mention as a ju as a Judeo-Christian worldview, but specifically a biblical worldview that we're constantly struggling to shape and implement in our thinking, is to think consistently within that framework that we believe. But that is, we speak the truth, and it is in love. In verse 25, therefore, having already put off the lie, let each one of you speak truth. And the use of truth here goes back to the use of truth in 4.15, um, that we speak truth with his neighbor. That doesn't mean that you're not lying to your neighbor or deceiving him, but you're talking, your conversation with one another is going to be influenced by your worldview and shaped by your worldview and thinking in the absolute categories of biblical truth. Verse 29, people have a difficult time with this as it's Translated at no corrupt word, and it, it can also mean rotten word because it relates to anything that is said within the framework of a non biblical worldview, of a pagan worldview in one of its many uh, shapes or forms. So the rotten word just represents speaking within the framework of the lie, and let no uh, word corrupted by the lie proceed out of your mouth. It's not saying don't lie. It's saying don't speak in terms of the deceptive worldviews that are out there. And we see so many believers today, so many churches even, that have succumbed to the pressures, uh, the social pressures, that have developed in this country in the last 10 years. And they compromise with it. And we're not to let that kind of thinking or those values be part of our conversation. But what is good for edification? We need to be talking about that which relates to the encouragement of the Word of God. It's it's that which is edifying defined further as that which imparts grace to the hearer. In verse 31, another contrast, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and blasphemy, interesting concept. I was asked by a friend of mine not long ago, what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Well, most people have a superficial view of that, which simply means, you know, don't, when you have some expletive, don't use the name of Christ or God uh, when you hammer your thumb or something like that. Uh, that's a pretty shallow view. The context, understanding that in the Old Testament, is do not put the name of God on something that God has not uh, um, validated. In other words, the person who goes around and says, well, I think that what God wants me to do today is X, Y, or Z, has God told you that? Did he reveal that to you? Well, you just put God's name on a project, and you have no idea whether God affirms that or not. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, That's that's the context when you get into the Old Testament study. That's what makes it blasphemy is you are putting God's name on a project or on a course of action that God has not necessarily validated, verified, or authenticated. And that is a much more profound concept, because you hear believers all the time talking about, this, I think this is God's will for my life, or that's God's will for my, my life, and they have no v- validation of that. That's serious. And in the Old Testament context, it had a lot to do with things that were going on in the pagan Baal worships and saying, this is what God wants me to do. Uh, Can you think of an example of one of the worst cases of blasphemy and taking the Lord's name in vain that's given in the Old Testament? Happened twice, at least. Aaron, Moses is up on the mountain. Aaron makes a golden calf and said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Then it happens several years later with the rebellion that happened between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam is the king of the north, and he realizes, well, you know, he can't have his citizens in the north going down to Jerusalem three times a year to worship. That's going to that's get, get, bring him problems eventually. So he has two golden calves made, puts one in Bethel and another one up north in Dan, and says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. So he is assigning the name of Yahweh to something that is not uh, God's will. So that's the idea of blasphemy, along with all malice. So we look at these passages, and we realize that what we say, what comes out of our mouth, is very much a part of distinguishing our walk. And Ephesians 5, 3 and 4 says, but fornication and all uncleanness, listing a series of sins here that should not be identified or named or characteristic for those, uh, for the saints, for believers, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Notice you have these positive commands here that on the one hand, it should be, Edifying and impart grace, and then on the other, it should be characterized by gratitude, gratefulness to God for what He has provided. So that brings us back to our passage in Ephesians five, eleven and twelve, that we are not to have a partnership there, but we're to expose them, not expose the people per se, but to expose the works of darkness. So how, how do we understand this word in the Greek? Well, I think this is, this is very important to understand this. First of all, it's a present active imperative, and a present imperative, the sense of that is that he's telling us what is extremely important and what should characterize our life on a day-to-day basis, whereas an aorist imperative is something you need to do right now. You need to all of a sudden elevate this to a priority. But when it's a present imperative, it's talking about this should be the normative characteristic, your standard operating procedure. Now, there's three senses to this that you find in, in the lexicon. And what's important is that the third one is the one that most people jump to. But I think it's the first one that is the most, you know, when in a dictionary lists word meanings in order 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, one is the most common uses usage. Number two is the second most common usage. Third is the third most common usage. So they're ranked in a certain order. So the first meaning here is to scrutinize or examine something carefully, to bring it to light, to expose it, to set it forth in a sense of scrutiny. Where do we see this idea of scrutiny? We saw that with the use of docimazo. just a few uh, just a few verses uh, past where it says that we are finding out what is acceptable, we're to scrutinize it, we're to evaluate it, we're to think about it. That's, that's the meaning of expose here, is to investigate it and analyze it and then illuminate what is going on with it. With it. The second meaning is to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing are convicting or convincing them. So this is having a conversation with somebody to help them understand that what they're thinking or what they're doing is something that is uh, less than honorable or less uh, less than productive, that there may be some significant errors in it. And then the last one is to express strong disapproval of someone's actions. Uh, this is when you would go up and you would actually say, you, not, you need to quit doing that. That's wrong. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is for us to be evaluating uh, what's going on in the world around us. Now, there's two books that I have read in the last several years that I recommend to people. There's so much going on today, so many different aspects of the pagan worldview that I don't want to take the time to have series on Marxism and socialism and wokeism and uh, all of the other things that are going on today. Um, and you need to think deeply about these things. The first book is was published in 2020 by Dr. Erwin Lutzer. Uh, Dr. Lutzer was the pastor for, I think, almost 50 years at Moody. Uh, it's now just Moody Church. used to be Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, Uh, He did his master's of theology. He was in the same class as Charlie Clough at Dallas Seminary back in the 60s and then got his doctorate, and he has written a, a, a lot of books, and I have appreciated all of the ones that I have read. The first one is, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. And so you will read this, and it will illuminate a lot of things that are going on in the world today, and maybe some ideas or some thoughts or some things that have actually uh, influenced you. Uh, the second book that he came out with is No Reason to Hide Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. That came out a couple of years ago. Both of them are very good because he's biblical. There is another book called "An Open Letter to the American Church" by Eric Metaxas, and on our Friday morning group, we went through, skimmed both of these, did a book review on this. I do not do not recommend Metaxas at all. His model for how to handle the problems in the culture is to go to a questionable theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is often uh, lifted up by unwitting evangelicals who don't know a whole lot as a standard for spirituality, and I doubt that Bonhoeffer was even saved based on the written evidence, and, but that's Metaxas's standard for how we should deal with problems in the culture. It's a breath of fresh air to read Lutzer because he backs everything he's saying with Scripture. And that's his focus. We have to do what the Scripture says. So what we do in terms of exposing the works of darkness is we have to come to understand them and how they conflict with biblical truth. Because the first place where we have to expose them may be within our own thinking. And so we have to understand these things. We must learn that as products of our own culture, that we are still influenced by our culture. Uh, You you may put on brand new shoes. They may be spit-shined and polished. And you may have on a brand new suit. But if you walk through a barn, you will get manure on your shoes. And we're all, as it were, walking through a barn. And we're picking up, unwittingly picking up, a lot of scubala is the Greek word. And it sticks to our shoes. So we have to be conscious of these ideas. Second, we need to expose these things to our children within the matrix of our home. That's divine institution three and in family. It's best central passages in Deuteronomy six four starts with the Uh, Shema, hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is a unity. And this verse is the the starting point. We start with God. And then the next command is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You have to internalize and assimilate the word. And you will teach them diligently. That means self-consciously, intentionally, purposefully. You think it through, and you have a clear objective training plan for how you are going to start educating your children, and if you wait until they can understand the words that you are using, you've waited way too long. There's lots of simple ways that you can begin to Uh, teach and train your children when they're just hearing you because you're formatting their brain already with vocabulary. You just read Scripture to them. You give them the gospel. You talk about the Lord all the time, and that is formatting their brain for the future. And you teach them diligently. You have a plan. Um, And you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. It's not just a formal thing it's that as you go through the issues in life you say well how, how did we respond to that well didn't do so good you know got kind of mad on the freeway and you talk about how you're supposed to respond and how you're supposed to do things and what those, and the and the reason is scripture and so this is uh one of the things and then as they get older you give them assignments to write about and you give them things to read that are good so that you can help them understand Uh, what's going on today in terms of uh, of what they may be hearing at school related to uh, uh, transgender stuff and what they may be hearing that's related to socialism and, and racism and all these other things that are going on today. But you have to know this. You have to teach this to yourself along the way so that you can train your kids. So that's another way in which we expose this darkness. Third, we can expose this in the workplace, but that involves wisdom and skill. We can do it just by asking questions, not going in and and making announcement that this is just garbage and I'm not going to do it, but by thinking through and having a uh having a strategy on how to do this. Um, there was a student at Chafer Seminary not long ago that worked for uh worked for a company that put forth some policies back in 2020 that were not wise, but they were socially acceptable. And what this student did was to go back and uh, work through a very well-documented and presented argument that she took to her boss and showed that there would be some real problems in terms of production and in terms of things that the company was doing, if they implemented these policies. And he was responsive. Sometimes it may not be responsive, but he was responsive. He said, I never even thought about those things. You're absolutely right. And so that's very positive. You yeah, Examples like that in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel goes to the um, uh, head eunuch and presents a, the case that maybe our diet will be better than your diet and our guys will do better, and so let's have a little test case, and and so that's good. But you also have situations where you go to the person in authority, like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did with Nebuchadnezzar and the fiery furnace and the worshiping the statue, and he says, no, you're going to die, and God protects you, but God may not protect you. You may lose your job. You may uh, be impoverished and be homeless or whatever. But God's going to take care of you. He'll provide for you. That's what happens. Now, those situations in Daniel, and Daniel does it later when um, uh, Darius sets forth the command that, that you can't pray to anyone other than me for the next 30 days. And Daniel just continued his process of praying every day. And so he was sent to the lion's den. But those guys are in situations where they don't have alternatives. They're stuck in their job, as it were. They're they're not quite slaves, but close to it, because they were brought as captives from Judea. But we don't live in a world like that. We live. You have a voluntary association with your employer. And so you may get to a point where you say, I just can't handle this anymore. And you've made your appeals, and they were denied. And so you choose to associate somewhere else. We have that choice. That is our other option: is that we say, "Okay, I'm going to uh, leave and relocate or uh, re-employ, so that I can be in an environment where I can uh, continue to do things." And it, but that's between each individual and the Lord. You have to decide where your where your areas are. And there are some of us, I know I went through, when I was looking at teaching and I taught for a couple of years back in the 70s, I saw where policies were going to go, and I thought, no, I don't think I want to be in an environment where we're implementing these kinds of policies. So I decided there were better better things to do, and then God was clearly pointing me in this direction. You have to be careful how you approach people. Proverbs 9.8 says, don't correct a scoffer. Lest he hate you, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs nine seven says he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Proverbs fifteen twelve A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. Proverbs nineteen twenty five, strike a scoffer and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding and he will discern knowledge. So you have to exercise some wisdom and unfortunately our wisdom often comes from doing things the wrong way like we get wise and make good decisions because we were foolish and made bad decisions but we learn from our experience John 3:20 20 and 21 we have to remember that everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And sometimes you're going to cast your pearls before swine, and they're going to turn on you. So there's always a risk of being the one who is walking in the light and exposing, not in the sense of physically rebuking, but just trying to help walk through a situation. In Second Thess 3:6 and Second uh, Thessalonians 3:14, we have these commands. In 3:6, we're told um, that we are to withdraw from every brother, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Verse 14: Note uh, that person who does not obey our word, and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. In Romans 1, 16, and 17, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Verse 18, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, in other words, their own desires, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Second uh, Timothy 3, 2 through 4 gives a whole list of behaviors And then in verse 5 says, and from such people turn away. Ephesians 5.12, we come to this passage, it's shameful even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret. So because of time, I'm going to stop there. And that, that concludes the doctrine on separation. It takes wisdom and skill. They're not hard and fast rules. It's not legalism. It's recognizing that there are places and influences, and people that we should avoid because they influence us. For the next person, it's not a problem, but for you, it may be a problem. And so there's not one rule, one size that fits all, but you have to decide where you can function in your life where you are not going to be uh, influenced in a wrong way. Some of those you're not going to be able to avoid. It's family, it's work. um, Others you can You have the option. You can make certain decisions. So that's the issue. We are to walk as light, and as light we are going to expose, bring to light, uh, evaluate, investigate things that may be harmful and disruptive. It's not the kind of decisions that I'm talking about where you just make it in an in emotional reaction, well, I'm just not going to do that. It calls for thought. It calls for patience. It calls for evaluation. These are important facets to use, and it, above all, it calls for a lot of prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things today. To be reminded that we are in the world, we cannot escape a lot of influences, but we can avoid being influenced and responding to them. That we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We have a unique and distinct identity, and that we have a mission. We have been sent into the world in order to be a representative, in order to walk as light in the midst of a corrupt and perverse generation. We cannot escape these things. But there are some things that we ought to avoid because of who we are, because of what they are, and we have to have the wisdom to know uh, how to apply this. Father, we want to recognize that there are those who are here, those who listen, who may not be saved, may not have trusted Christ as Savior, and to them what we are learning is not how to become a Christian, how to become saved. What we are studying is how a saved person, how a believer, should live as a child of God, as a new creature in Christ and a member of the body of Christ, that there are standards and that we are to live according to those standards. But salvation is based on not on what we do. It's based on what Christ did on the cross, and all we are responsible for is whether we believe or not believe the free offer of salvation, that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, that he died on the cross and paid that penalty and rose from the dead, and that by believing and trusting in him, we have everlasting life. There's nothing we can do to enhance it, nothing we can do to destroy it, that Christ, what Christ did, he did in completion. He said it is complete, it is finished, and so we trust exclusively in him faith alone, in Christ alone. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.